This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So we continue our series, What Makes Us Family, and study in the book of Galatians, and we are studying how our faith is what makes us family, right? Not the commonality of our interests, not the uniformity of our lives, but we are united under one name and one name only, Jesus Christ. Amen? That was good, amen. It's going to be a good day. The word family, uh, it's a very important word to me. We might define the word family pretty similarly, but all of us have different viewpoints, emotions, frustrations, feelings about the, uh, about the word family. Right? When we think about our, our nuclear family, our extended or blended families. Right? Some of us can't wait for Thanksgiving to see family, and some of us can wait a really long time for Thanksgiving because of our family. Some of us were very thankful the pandemic canceled some of our family gatherings, extended grace, according to you. But I fall into the category, I mean, I can't wait for Thanksgiving. And you can probably tell because it's February, and I'm talking about Thanksgiving. But I come from a big family, big family. Walter Payton's jersey number is the amount of first cousins that I have. 34 first cousins. And I am so blessed. There's nine on my mom's side, seven on my dad's side. And it's very likely, I did the math on this, that you have ran into one of them into your life if you live around the area, probably at Costco, because that happens. <laughs> that happens at Costco all the time. Where do you, where do, why are you going to Costco? I'm just going to hang out with people. But there's a strong unity within my family that we can, like we can be a little, little nation. Like we have our own picnics. We have our own vacations. We, all, we have our own WhatsApp group. But part of it's culture. Part of it's our upbringing. And part of it's the people and the personality. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that when we're saying that we're united in Christ as family, it might initially give us a taste of what family means when maybe we're not looking to the truth of what family is. Our feelings or experiences might negatively impact our perspective of what family should be. And as followers of Jesus, we have to go to the truth to define what family is so that we can walk according to the gospel in order to live out the gospel, right? Truth is important. But regardless of how close I am with my extended family, I was reminded that through our series so far that, that the unity that we already have in Christ trumps all other forms of unity. Right? We ought to live that out according to the truth. And we need this truth to define our family so we can continually grow to be more like Jesus as a united family. And so this morning, I want us to look at how we ought to Strive to live out the gospel by experience freedom in the gospel, looking at truth of the gospel and growing in the gospel, right? not, not moving past it, not going outside of it, but within it. And so the title for today's sermon is Living Out the Gospel, Living Out the Gospel. And we'll look at three assertions to remind us how we get to do that. And, but one of the main truths that we need to focus on, we're not trying to better ourselves. We're not trying to be better Christians, right? My prayer is that through the Holy Spirit working in us right now that we 
would experience transformation through the Spirit. And we're not living out our faith for the gospel, but we want to be living transformed lives because of the gospel. It's the only conviction that transforms us to live the good news out. And so if you haven't opened up your Bibles, let's open up our Bibles to Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. This is the big idea for this morning is we live out the gospel in freedom and truth while growing to be like Jesus. We live out the gospel in freedom and truth while growing to be like Jesus. And uh, let's look at the first assertion here, the first declaration of truth that we need to be reminded of. Here's the first one. A fear of man obstructs the freedom in the gospel. Fear of man obstructs the freedom in the gospel, gets in the way of the freedom that we have. Look at verses 11 through 12. Follow along with me. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And uh, Paul writes in chapter 2 how there was an agreement between the pillars of the faith, James, John, and Peter. There was an agreement It wasn't required that uh, Paul had to go prove himself. But Paul wanted to reveal his hand of who he is fully and the message that he came to preach. And so in Jerusalem, three years after Paul's conversion, Barnabas there to support Paul. And then 14 14 years later after his conversion, again in Jerusalem, a Jewish city, Peter is there supporting an agreement, united in message with Paul. And now we see a difference here. In the beginning of the letter, we see how Paul was defending his apostleship. And he states repeatedly that he had received this gospel through the revelation of Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. But his credibility was questioned, so his message was questioned. But in verse 11 here, it starts with, but Cephas came to Antioch. But this agreement seemed broken. All of a sudden, imagine being side by side for the sake of the gospel with these people and now the same situation, but you have to oppose or call someone out for that same reason for the sake of the gospel. And here starts the confrontation between Paul and Peter. Right, heavyweights in the ministry. A public confrontation since Peter was publicly proclaiming a false witness. It was a public sin. And it was directly affecting the people of Antioch, a multi-ethnic city, Jews and Gentiles, which Paul was called to reach. And Peter, being an influential figure in the church, needed influential correction because he was behaving in a manner that did not align with his convictions. And what happens when we don't act on our convictions? We go back to what we followed in our old creation. Peter was going back into the slavery of legalism. Chapter 2, 4, as chapter 2, verse 4 indicates, right? That bondage Jesus already had broken and has given us freedom in Christ. And so what actually happened? What happened for Peter to, to, to stand condemned, to be blamed, to, to be labeled as he was out of act? 
the showdown between Paul and Peter was in fact a picture of the deeper issue going on in Galatians. So I've got three questions for us in these in these two uh, verses that we're looking at, right? Who is the circumcision party? Why did Peter separate himself? And the third one, why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal? Who is the circumcision party? Uh, I believe there was two groups, the circumcised party, who were non-Christian Jews. And then there were the men sent from James who were Christian Jews. The circumcision party, they were so pro-law, and they lived lives as only law. They were the promoters about keeping a circumcision, about dietary laws, and observing Jewish days. In Acts 11, the circumcision party even questioned and criticized Peter with his association with Gentiles. And so... The, these men, the circumcision party, they favored segregation and separation of those who lived by the law, those whose identity was found in the Jewish community versus everybody else. It was us versus them. So why did Peter separate himself? Peter shared fellowship and participated in meals that included Jews and Gentiles. He was eating with the Gentiles, the text says. And we can take this in a few ways why Peter separated himself, right? His dilemma could be what he was eating, right? The text says that he was eating with Gentiles. We can assume that he was eating what they were eating or possible that he wasn't. The Jewish laws where you're not able to eat certain unclean food or else that will make you unclean. Or maybe he was not eating what he was supposed to be eating according to the circumcision party. His dilemma could be with whom he was eating with. The association caused him some drama with with the circumcised party, right? Maybe he was not wanting to be associated with them again, so he separated himself to avoid all that. Or it could be a combo, the company and the meal itself. Everything about it, he didn't want to be associated with what he was eating, with whom he was eating with. But Peter was not doing anything wrong with eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. He had the freedom to eat whatever he wanted with whoever he wanted to eat with. And he had that freedom because of the gospel. He wasn't caught in the act, but he caught, but he was uh, he was acting like he was caught in the act after these certain men arrived. After the circumcision party arrived, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles, and he did that due to the fear of man. He feared this party, so he changed his behavior, and he was not acting on his convictions. And so, why is this a big? Deal, right? Why was it so detrimental to his witness where Paul had to publicly call him out in front of everybody? See, when Peter separated himself, he was putting up boundaries that Jesus tore down. He was putting up social boundaries. The Jews and Gentiles, they lived different lives culturally, and there were different groups of people. He was putting up those walls up again. He's putting up racial boundaries. 
He was putting up dietary boundaries. He was putting up association boundaries. He was putting up boundaries that supported nationalism. And we come from God's country. We're God's people. But you guys are not. We, we need to be separate here. Where I come from is more important than who you are. It was putting up boundaries that Jesus tore down through the gospel. Paul seems to have thought that Peter gave in to the pressure of needing to have his life look like a way that pleases certain people. Peter was denying the freedom of following Jesus, which is foundational in understanding what Christ has done for us. We just sang about this just a few minutes ago. Christ has set us free. And we have all sinned. We've gone against God. And we deserve that separation from him. But God did something about that. God sent his own son for us. And he came down and lived a life in perfect obedience, in love. But he came to die for those who believe in him so that the forgiveness of sins would be forgiven if we believe in who Christ is. And so it was done at a cost, but three days later, he walked out of that tomb to prove that death could not hold him and that he is Lord. And he ascended and is in heaven right now sitting because his work is accomplished and he is yet to come again, though. And he did all that so that he can, that he can invite us into a freeing relationship in grace and in love and in truth. He breaks us from a religious devotion to rule following. He restored that relation that we had with the Father. Peter was promoting the Gentiles to look a certain way, to do certain things. He's going to a, a life of legalism that ties in with his former identity, not his new identity in Christ. And the root of his response was due to the fear of man. What Peter was controlled by the opinion of these men, and we've seen this before with Peter. He denied Christ three times. Peter was asked by a servant girl, hey, aren't you also that man's disciple? And Peter says, no way. I am not. In Mark 7, 14, Jesus addresses the need of keeping uh, these uh, dietary laws that once was in the Old Testament. Jesus says, hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. What you eat is not what defiles you. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What you say, what you believe, it's in your heart is what defiles you. Jesus addressed it. Now God sent Peter a vision about these, what he can eat and what is from God. But yet Peter gave in to the one he feared more. The fear of man is a, a dangerous fear for our souls. It's more powerful and more subtle than we think. And it pulls us away from the freedom that we have in Christ through the gospel. When we're controlled by the opinion of people, we put on an obstacle in front of the freedom that Christ has given us. The fear of man obstructs the freedom of the gospel. 
a biblical counselor, says this about fear. Who or what you fear is that which controls you. Right? Who or what you fear is that which controls you. Right? You will give in to the one you fear. That's why I listen to my wife all the time. I believe we all struggle with this in one form or another. The danger in not acknowledging our fear of man that it leads to disobedience in our hearts and through our actions, and then we live a life trying to please man versus God. So let me ask, in what areas in your life do you fear man more than God? Or do you feel pressure to say certain things, act in certain ways, or even commit to certain things when you're around certain people? Is it in your workplace? Are you afraid to, uh, of what people will think if you associate yourself with God or, or with the church or speak in truth and love? Is it amongst your friends where maybe correction is required, where where truth needs to be said out loud, but you're afraid of ruining the friendship due to the fear of man? Are you pleasing people out of God's love for you or out of fear of man so that you're afraid that they may not like you and so you have to do everything for them? You have to love out of that versus the love that God has for you. Church, I want us to experience the freedom in the gospel that overcomes the fear of what people, what other people think about you. Or sometimes we're too weighed down by this. And as followers of Jesus, we don't need to put on a show. Or the church should be a place where the worse you are, the more welcomed you are, not the other way around. If you are in Christ, God has set in stone your value, your identity, your eternity. The one who has most authority, we ought to fear. And when we do that, then we experience the freedom of the gospel. We have nothing to lose. I think I'm experiencing that freedom right now. In my college apartment, my my bed was against this wall, and uh, I would just put Bible verses on this wall all the time. And uh, I remember uh, the one that was right here on my wall, and it was uh, Proverbs 29.25, and it says, I'm reading it right now on my wall, uh, it says, um, for, the, for the fear of man is a snare. Now, if you Google snare, it's, it's almost like a, a bear trap. For the fear of man is a snare, it will trap you. It will immobilize you. It will prevent you to do certain things. It's a snare every single time. But the next part, it's right here. For the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. But the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. Man, I needed that Bible verse every day. I still have it in my heart every day. Trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And the wall of Bible verses had a great impact on my life. And uh, now I sleep next to my wife, and anytime I try to write Bible verses on her, she gets 
really annoyed at me. So someone talk to her. Fear of man obstructs the freedom in the gospel. The second one is this. Hypocrisy distorts the truth of the gospel. Right? Hypocrisy distorts the truth of the gospel. Right? Before we read verse 11, right? Peter's decision to separate himself and listen to his fear of people versus acting on his own convictions led him and led others on the same path, a path of hypocrisy that does not reflect the truth of the gospel. And so let's read verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, and so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. One commentary says, Paul had a strong word for such behavior, hypocrisy. In Greek, it can be defined as play acting, putting on a mask so the audience would see an outward appearance that disguised the inward reality. The term hypocrite came from the word Greek drama. And I feel like Christians as a whole are being judged by the world, and one of the words I unfortunately believe we're defined as are hypocrites. Maybe you've heard it before. Wow, the church is full of hypocrites. Just like that. Right? Some people say people talk like that, right? And that can be Christians or non-Christians saying that. But however, this isn't a 2022 issue in the church. It isn't a new issue within the church. Clearly we see it here in Antioch. We ought to be defined by our love, not our lack of love, not our judgments. But thankfully Christianity does not stand on the shoulders of Christians, but it stands on the shoulders of the person Jesus Christ, amen, who displayed perfect love for us, who was not a hypocrite, but hypocrisy is a sin that distorts the truth of the gospel. Man, you need to be like this, but I don't need to be like this. You need to do this, but I don't need to be like this. But this also shows the need of the gospel. Right? And how does uh, Jesus view hypocrites? What does he say about hypocrites? And in Matthew uh, 23, verses uh, 25 through 26, This is what Jesus says. He calls out the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Can you imagine not cleaning the inside of your cup or the plate, but just cleaning the outside of it? It's gross. It's disgusting. I made sure to gag. It says on my notes. <laughs> Just kidding. Jesus calls it out. That's what Jesus thinks about it. See, hypocrisy is the gap between your character in the public eye and your character in your private life. Hypocrisy is the failure to act on your convictions from the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we we escape the caught-in-the-act moment publicly just to go live it privately. Tim Keller says, Peter had simply stopped acting in accord with his convictions. Peter's actions did not act in accordance with his belief. When we stop acting in accord with our convictions, we become people of diluted and distorted truth. 
but the Holy Spirit brings transformation through conviction through the gospel. Peter was denying truth, right? He was covering it up. He was adding more. He was putting a mask on. He was afraid, and so he acted upon his fear, which led him to sin against God and take others with him. Hypocrisy was a cancer here. It was negatively affecting other parts of the body. And even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas, the text says. In Acts 11.23, Barnabas was the one sent to Antioch and he experienced the grace of God and how God was working with them. He was glad and he exhorted them and said, remain faithful. It was Barnabas that accompanied Paul to Galatia. They, they were ministry partners in the mission. It was Barnabas that took Paul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how Paul on the road has seen the Lord, but even Barnabas fell into the pressure to look and act like the majority around him. It's subtle. It's powerful. Barnabas was not living out the truth of the gospel. The fear of man is deceiving, and it can lead you away from the truth of the gospel, regardless of, of what you've done, who you know, in vocational ministry, in ministry, whatever you have done. It is deceiving. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, says, Peter, Barnabas, and the rest were in fact people of the crucified Messiah. But they were pretending to be the people of Torah, as though the crucified Messiah was just an addition to Jewish identity, not its radical transformation. He was just adding on to his identity. He wasn't replacing his identity. Just a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a new friend of mine who was trying to get it right before he went to God. He didn't want God to be angry at him with who he is, with his sin, because he kept messing up over and over again. And so he tried really hard to get it right. The Lord worked on his heart over time. He transformed his heart. The Lord showed him how the grace of Jesus is enough. How we ought to go to Jesus as who we are, messy and broken, that we don't need to fix ourselves because we can't. And he accepted that free grace from Jesus. He kept saying over and over again, Jesus paid it all, and I don't have to do anything. I just have to believe him. He couldn't believe it, so he accepted saying it over and over and over again. I believe he was the happiest person in the world at that moment. And then a week later, he comes back and says, okay, now what? <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm busy. I can't, no, no. And he asked me, how do I be transformed like Paul so that God can use me? What do I need to be to be transformed and he says, and he asked me this, how can I be a witness to others if I am still struggling with sin? I don't want to be a hypocrite. Man, he had no idea like, how God was using him in that moment. The hypocrite is not the Christian who struggles against sin, who fights against temptation. The hypocrite is not the one that keeps trying to be obedient throughout failure regardless of how undesired it is, regardless of how difficult it is, that that is the Christian life. That this 
is a place for sinners to come at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging our sin and receiving his forgiveness. And the same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that transforms us. There's nothing outside of it. There's nothing more as Jesus and the cross, amen? The sin of hypocrisy is believing that we aren't as messed up as we seem and putting a mask over who we really are. Right? It can be influential. It can be uh, inconsistent in character. It can be detrimental to, your, to our witness. It's disobedient. It's a, it's a false profession. So what are ways that we may be hypocritical right, and distort the truth of the gospel. Remember, even Barnabas was led astray. Are we setting up our own standards of, of righteous behavior? Or you need to be where this level's at in order to be following Jesus the right way. Or we create a tier ranking system within the Christian community, self-made, and for some reason we're always on top of that tier. We allow our standards of what Christianity should look like to define Christians. Are we we being hypocritical in our loving? Are we loving uh, loving others selectively and not unconditionally, right? We're called to love our neighbors, all of us. Are we modifying our behavior among certain groups of people? Do we add rules for people to receive our love, our forgiveness, and grace where we know that God has freely given us his love and his grace and forgiveness? Do we have double standards? All these distort the truth of the gospel because the truth of the gospel reveals to us that we are sinners on the same level needing the same grace. And if there's anything in our hearts right now, we feel like we are being hypocritical, going against God. Let's repent of that right now. No need to wait on that. God, we're sorry. God, help us to to be corrected. Help us to go back to the truth that has set us free. Hypocrisy is not the one that a Christian that struggles with but sin or fight against temptation. Man, that is the Christian life, and we need each other to do that. The third assertion of the gospel is this. Correction provides opportunity to grow in the gospel. Correction provides opportunity to grow in the gospel. Paul was so confident in the gospel that was revealed to him that he was able to stand against Peter for the sake of, of the gospel, right? The truth mattered and his actions matter, right? Let's look at verse 14. 14 says this, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul is essentially saying, what are you doing, Peter? How can you go back to what you've abandoned? 
How can you believe that these Gentiles are second-class citizens and you are a first-class citizen? How can you believe in this one thing and then behave in another way? How can you believe that they need to follow the Jewish ways in order to be unified as a family in Christ? No, we've already been unified in Christ in the gospel. And uh, Paul isn't sharing his thoughts to Peter in an open forum discussion where he speaks and calls out Peter's misstep in his conduct of failing to live according to the truth. The correction was needed for the sake of truth. And Paul reminds us that nothing or no one is big enough for correction. But he sees the seriousness of Peter's behavior. He doesn't laugh it out. He doesn't wait. He doesn't passively put it aside. He's showing and calling out a deeper issue, a deeper sin issue that's going on in his life. Paul isn't just talking about what Peter was eating or with whom he was eating with. He's not saying, now you've broken the rules, you messed up. But Paul is telling Peter, bro, you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten how Christ has received you and how you ought to receive others. You've forgotten about the boundaries, the walls that Jesus has tore down so that we are all one. You've forgotten the grace that has been bestowed upon you through Christ and the new creation that we have in Christ. We need to remember that always. By not living out our convictions bring us brings us back into a former way of doing life versus the new way that God has shown us through Christ. And I wish I could be up here and say, man, I am really pollying it up right now, really correcting people in my life. More often, it is I in need in my conduct to be in step with the truth. And if we're thinking, man, how can Peter mess this up so many times, right? He was with Peter. He had the whole walking on water thing. And then he was like, ah, I'm a hypocrite, but I'm going to learn. He does it again. He does it again. And if we're here saying, if it was up to me, we're falling into that line of hypocrisy. One pastor writes, one of the main antidotes to hypocrisy is a culture of repentance. When people live out repentance, hypocrisy becomes much less of a problem in the church. But we need others in our lives to call us out in love when we are swerving from the truth. And at the same time, this is a little more difficult. We need to welcome that correction. If you're receiving it or giving it, Man, that takes us so much humility. It takes humility. But God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. Paul was correcting Peter and he now had a chance to, to go back to the foundation of faith. And we don't know, we don't see Paul's heart or Peter's heart in this. We don't know what happened next. But we're called out. We're called to call out conduct, not in step with the truth. That can be very difficult. 
But we're also called to listen to those calling out our conduct, not in step with the truth, and that can even be more difficult. Whenever we have an opportunity to, opportunity to bring correction or to be corrected, which leads to the truth of the gospel, that's always, always a good thing. My advice is this, right? Either way, right? either way, if you're, if you're giving it, pray about that. If you're receiving it, get ready for that. Approach it with humbleness. If you're receiving correction from someone, don't be defensive, don't be dismissive, but listen and let the Spirit guide. The role of the Holy Spirit is to, to convict. Sometimes he uses people in our lives to do that. And sometimes he doesn't need to do that. And I was convicted by the, by the text throughout this whole week about how I love my neighbors well and some others I avoid. Let the Spirit do the conviction. Let the Spirit bring change in our lives. And so how do we grow in our living out the gospel? We grow by listening to the word, by abiding in truth, by listening to the spirit of God. A new creation has given us freedom and truth while growing to be like Jesus in love and obedience. See, Peter left this table of fellowship due to the fear of man. And this table, it symbolized a fellowship that there was neither Jew or Greek, that there was neither slave nor free. This table is symbolized there was no, no, no male, no female, that we are all in one Christ. But Peter left it. He damaged the fellowship and he damaged his witness. We've done the same in our lives. The fellowship that Jesus has unified us, we've left. But there's one person at that table that will never ever leave. The table of fellowship. And that's Jesus. But he is the reason that we have fellowship. He is the reason that we have unity. He is the sole reason why we can be one family under one name. And he invites us to come to that table as you are. If you're living a hypocritical life, he invites you to come. If you're living a life of, of sin, he invites you to come. If you've left the table, he invites you to come. Go to Jesus. He wants to be with you. Live out that gospel. Live out the gospel in freedom. And we have so much freedom. Let's not be weighed down by the opinions that don't matter, but let's live in truth of the identity that God has given us, the eternity that God has secured us. value that God has given us. Let's live that out as a church, as a family. Let's take a, take a few moments to pray. Pray with me. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.